If uh, you are visiting and you don't know me, you're new here. My name's Rich and I am one of the leaders of the church. And we are continuing a series which we started last week uh, on the book of Nehemiah. We're calling it Co-Workers with God um, for reasons which I'll explain as we go along. The main thing that I want us to get today is we're going to tackle with chapter tackle chapter two, the second chapter of Nehemiah. Um, but I just want to give you a little overview of what's happened so far, because either some of you probably weren't here last week, uh, or if you were, some of the details may have gone hazy. The book that we're looking at, the action starts in the year 445 BC. The Jewish people have been taken out of their homeland and brought into exile in various stages. The exile lasts for decades when the Jews are displaced in what is kind of modern-day Iraq, uh, Babylon, Assyria, uh, and then the Persian Empire is the governing empire of the world at the time What we're reading this. It stretches from sort of past Libya right the way over to India, uh, covers Greece uh, and parts of Turkey, and was the biggest world empire. And the Jews, having been God's special people in the land, suddenly find themselves hundreds and hundreds of miles away from home in exile. There were various return journeys home over the previous decades to our accounts that we have in the book of Nehemiah, all of which were accompanied by great expectation and hope that God was going to restore the nation to its former glory, but all of which fell woefully short. The expectations proved way too high, and actually the situation in Jerusalem, the once glorious capital city, the place where God had spoken to his people and said, this is the focal point for connecting with me, this is the place I will choose as a dwelling place to be and where you can come and meet with me, was actually little more than a derelict set of ruins. They'd rebuilt the temple, but it was a poor effort compared to the previous glorious temple built by Solomon. And there was a general sense of complete disappointment and disillusionment and probably cynicism amongst the Jewish people who lived around Jerusalem and a feeling of, well, it never came to anything. God never really did anything. What we saw last week is that Nehemiah, one of the kind of co-stars of the book that we're reading through at the moment, decided that the The poor situation was not just something to be tolerated, but he decided to make it his personal problem. And Nehemiah decided that somebody needed to step up and take action on behalf of Jerusalem, on behalf of God's people, on behalf of God's glory. And we left him last week praying, just about to go and speak to King Artaxerxes I, who was the emperor of the Persian Empire of the day. Nehemiah himself was a uh, high-ranking civil servant in the administration, but nevertheless, he's nervous about going to speak to uh, a total monarch. What we also saw is the book of Nehemiah is not just of historical interest for those of us who like digging into things in the past, but actually we're going to see week after week after week there are parallels between the work that, Jeremiah is, uh, that Nehemiah rather, is doing, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, and the work that we as Christians, those of you who are believers in Jesus this morning, that we as Christians are called to do in building the church, by which we don't mean a building, we mean a community of God's people gathered together. And we're going to see this week and in all the subsequent weeks that there are parallels between the work rebuilding Jerusalem and the work building 
a vibrant, healthy community of God's people, which is particularly what we're trying to do here in Lewis. The big question we're going to look at today is how do we do that? Maybe if you were here last week, you came away thinking, yeah, I'm going to make it my problem. I'm going to get my, you know, roll up my sleeves, get my hands dirty and be part of the solution. I want to see the church built. I want to see people reach for Jesus. I want to see communities changed. But how practically do I do that? Well, what we're going to do this week is we're going to look at chapter 2 under the title of Underhand Tactics. And we're going to see that there are some underhand tactics that we need to get a hold of if we're going to successfully see a strong church built that can reach and change the places around us. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to hit the passage. And it will appear on the screen behind you in a moment uh, for those of you that are not looking at it in a Bible. Jesus, I want to thank you so much that you love us and you care for us. Thank you that we can meet with you as we do this morning in worship. And thank you that you speak to us through your word, written a long time ago, yet frighteningly relevant for us today. Amen. Amen. Okay, as I'm going to read through, I want you to notice that there is a kind of a a repeated pattern in the passage that we're going to read. It basically is a cycle that we run through twice where Nehemiah makes a big ask. He's got a big idea. We then are going to see a key phrase about God's involvement. We're then going to see that Nehemiah gets agreement to his big ask against the odds. And then at the end of each of these cycles, we're going to see opposition comes to what he's doing. And so let's read through the passage, starting at Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, that was presumably when they started making micros, in the 20th year, cheap gag, but it got a laugh, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, this is Nehemiah speaking, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, and here's where he makes the big ask, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? He's speaking about Jerusalem. And its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. It's like he fires up a little bullet prayer in the moment. And he answers the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, in Judah, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will the journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time, and just kind of pausing slightly on the narrative, what we pick up when we read the rest of the book is as well as saying to Nehemiah, okay, you can go and do your little mission, he actually also appoints him as governor of the province of Judah, which is a little district in the Persian Empire, and they've all got governors over them, and Nehemiah is appointed the governor of this district. It may even be that the district of Judea is newly created at this point by Artaxerxes for Nehemiah to run his little project in, because as we're going to see shortly, some of the neighboring governors are very unhappy about what's going on. Uh, So I said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates? Trans-Euphrates sounds like a sort of a train network or something like that. But it it was the whole area of the Persian Empire that would be on the kind of western end of the Mediterranean. Uh, Jordan, uh, Syria, uh, Israel, 
all these kind of areas are part of the province of Trans-Euphrates, of which the district of Judah, where all our actions are going to take place, is one small sub-district. So he says, can I have letters to the other governors of this area so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. So he's making a big ask. He's saying, do you know what? Could I have leave to go and do this little mission, and could you finance it, please? However, here's the key phrase that we're going to spend a lot of time looking at this morning. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Here's the opposition. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, these are the kind of the baddies that we're going to see all the way through the book. These are the guys opposing what Nehemiah is trying to do. But we need to be crystal clear. They're not pantomime villains as such. These are not bandits that are just kind of lurking around trying to mess with things. These are politicians. The reality is that Sanballat the Horonite was the governor of the province, the district of Samaria to the north of Judah. And we know this because we've got a letter written to him several decades after the events recorded in this chapter of Nehemiah addressing him uh, as the the, the governor. He's an old man by this time, but the governor of Samaria. Uh, And it was found in a collection of letters in Egypt Um, several decades ago. So these are not made-up kind of pantomime baddies. These are real people who existed and that we've got historical records of. Tobiah the Ammonite, which sounds like he's a fossil, but what that actually means is he's, he's the governor of the district of Ammon, which was to the west of Judah, just across the other side uh, of the Dead Sea. And later on, we're going to see a character called Geshem, who is the leader of an Arab league of people to the south. So kind of north West, south, we've got these enemies, these, these official positions, and these people are not happy with what's going to go on. And we'll see later on that people from the, uh, the, the west join in as well and put pressure on them. So Judah is almost going to be surrounded by enemies. Then the whole cycle starts again, and we're going to see another big ask, and then we're going to see again this key phrase about the gracious hand of God and then some opposition. So Nehemiah continues, I went to Jerusalem. And after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem. In other words, what he's doing is he's taking a little tour around the outskirts of the walls that have been broken down. So he's really traveling along next to piles of rubble trying to see how bad is the damage, what needs to be done. Uh, Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials there did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet... Excuse me, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, he's going to make the big ask, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come on, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. 
It's that key phrase again in Nehemiah's thinking, the gracious hand of my God upon me. So then they replied, let's start rebuilding. And they began this good work. But, boo, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Nehemiah says, I answered them saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or any historic right to it. So it's tough talk from Nehemiah. What he's done is he somehow got the agreement of the king to go back and rebuild. And when the opposition comes, he says, you people are not going to stop me. He's a tough man. And we're going to see why he gets that toughness. It's not necessarily just his character, as we see these underhand tactics. The first thing I want us to look at is this key phrase, the gracious hand of God upon him. We saw it in verse 8 and verse 18. A literal translation of the original Hebrew says, the good hand of God upon me. It's, a, it's God's hand working for good in this situation. And the Hebrew uh, language often uses hand as a kind of idiom, a synonym for the personal power that someone exerts so what he's saying is God personally is working to make sure that my mission is a success he's not saying well fingers crossed it's going to be good or I think the fates are with me or I hope I've got the energy to do this Nehemiah's confidence rests in the fact that he's saying God is personally working for me the gracious hand of my God is upon me and what I'm going to go and do and this key concept is what gives him confidence and the reason that he attributes for his success. It's also the reason for the hilarious and very clever pun in the title. See, the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Underhand, underhand tactic. Do you see? Yeah? You get that for free. That's, you, that costs you nothing. You just, that's just thrown in. That's on me. Thank you. We're going to see underhand tactics. Tactics, how do we work? Under the gracious hand of God. One, chapter 1, verse 9, what we finished with last week. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of the man. Nehemiah's sole hope for this mission is God is with me and God is going to empower me. The gracious hand of God for us is the key ingredient to the work that we're trying to do here to build a church. Trying to build church without the gracious hand of God upon us is like trying to make a cup of tea without using a tea bag. It's like trying to make wine without using grapes. It's like trying to make a pizza without using cheese. What have you got? you just got some dough with tomato on it. Is that, that one of those low-calorie ones you see on the, on, the, uh, on the menus when you go there and you think, who orders that? I know who orders them because I've sat and watched a male man order one. Yes. I don't want, I'm not naming him. But, well, it was awkward, wasn't it? Uh, (laughs) Nehemiah is fighting against the odds here. This is not a mission he can expect to succeed in. That's why he's so sure, I must have the gracious hand of God upon me. In Ezra chapter 4, Ezra is the book of the Bible that really deals with the first half of the return from exile. It comes right before Nehemiah. In Ezra chapter 4, we find Artaxerxes, the same Persian king here, earlier on stopping building work in Jerusalem. There was a previous attempt to rebuild the walls and some enemies, probably our same kind of trio of bad guys, complain to Artaxerxes and says they're rebuilding the walls so they can rebel against you. Stop them. And the king issues a decree, a royal imperial decree. There will be no more wall building in Jerusalem. 
So when Nehemiah approaches him, he knows this. He knows this is not going to be in the bag. He knows that there's every chance that this is going to fail. And I may suffer severely for promoting what could be seen as treachery against the emperor. But nevertheless, he goes and asks. When he gets to Jerusalem, it's no foregone conclusion this is going to work. He is no longer going back to the same idealistic kind of band of of, of pioneers. You've got excitement. We've left Babylon. We've left Persia. We are here to rebuild Jerusalem. Let's get stuck in. He's going back to a group of people, many of whom have been there for decades, and are disillusioned, disappointed, and cynical Oh yeah, you're going to do where other people have failed, are you? Good luck with that, Nehemiah. Why should we put time and energy into this? It's never worked before. And again, when we look at building church, those kind of obstacles can be the ones that daunt us. We can say, but build a big, strong church in this culture? You're joking. It's all we can do to hold on. The the political climate increasingly turns against uh, evangelical Bible-believing Christianity. People are increasingly disillusioned and disinterested. And actually, even Christians increasingly become disinterested in church. Oh, I was hurt by a church once. A church let me down. I don't like what the church does about this. Oh, it's such an obligation. I've got so many other things I want to do with my life. Do I need to be there all the time, every week? Can't I dip in, dip out? Actually, what we're going to see is if that is your view of church, you've missed it. And you've perhaps become like the officials in Jerusalem. Oh, not another you know, bright young thing going to stir us up and try and talk us into victory. But the gracious hand of God was upon Nehemiah. And actually we're going to see he succeeds in this mission. He knows it's an uphill battle, which is why he's praying and praying and praying. We know we face an uphill battle. We know in our own hearts we find disillusionment, disappointment, cynicism, passivity. That's why we pray and pray and pray. Thank you so much to you guys who turned up uh, during the prayer week last week. Sunday night, guys on Wednesday, girls on Thursday and Saturday morning praying. I was really pleased, having kind of slightly ticked a few of us off about kind of prayer meetings going down the priority agenda. I was so pleased to see a decent bunch of us coming out and praying and calling on God for this. And we need to keep doing it. We're praying again in a couple of weeks' time. The first Sunday evening of every month, we meet together to pray. Please, come and pray with us. Don't think, I've done the prayer week. Back to business as usual. Business as usual is let's fight in prayer. And if you're a member of the church, I want to ask you to be with us uh, in a couple of weeks' time to pray. This thing about co-workers, we're calling the series Co-Workers with God. If, again, if you weren't here last week, it's to do with the fact that we are working together with God. Several times in the Bible, uh, a Greek word that is used of colleagues, people working on the same task together, is used, first of all, of people working together, but it's also used in these cases of people working together with God. It's like God and I are working on a job together. And that's the kind of theme we're picking up from Nehemiah, that we need to work together with God and each other to build a church in this town that's going to affect more than just a few people. But what we could do is we could mistake the idea that we work as co-workers with God to assume that we are equal workers with God. Whereas actually that's very far from the case. It's more akin to the time you know, when you know, mum and daughter are going to bake a cake And it's a lot easier for the mum to do it on her own, but we're going to bring the daughter in to measure stuff. It's exactly the same kind of situation as when dad's doing some DIY and the little boy, you know, a little five-year-old, can I help? You think, well, that's a loaded question, isn't it? I will allow you to assist. Whether that's helping or not is a different matter. 
It's kind of like that with God. It's not about, God, I'm fairly competent and skilled, and I wonder whether we could do an equal 50-50 partnership to build a church. It's about saying, God, I'm going to give it my best shot, but I so need your gracious hand of favour to be upon us. It's like when you see dads kind of teaching their sons cricket, and often you, you, you watch them on the beach for a bit often, and there's ball after ball after ball. The dad bowls. You know, eventually he realises, let's not bowl over, over arm at my five-year-old kid. Let's try a little underarm one. Let's use a tennis ball rather than a cricket ball. Uh, and the kid's still swinging wildly, because cricket bats are quite thin, aren't they? It's not like you know, a tennis racket or a shovel or something like that. And eventually, usually what happens is dad resorts to standing with the kid, doesn't he? The kid's holding the bat, and dad's kind of holding the bat with the kid, you know, and, and someone else, mum or another sibling, bowls the ball in, and effectively, dad does it, doesn't he? He holds the arms, hey, it's a six, and usually the kid goes, get off, I can do it, I can do it, I've done it. That's what we're doing when we talk about co-workers with God. We're going to work hard, but it must be God empowering it and working through it. Otherwise, really, we're just we're missing the point. Nehemiah doesn't say, do you know what, I'm a high-powered civil servant, and I've just convinced the most powerful man on earth to send me to Jerusalem. I am the man. Nehemiah says, because the gracious hand of God was upon me, I achieved what I couldn't otherwise achieve. And faith is saying, God is with us, we can do this. And so the first thing I want us to grab in our underhand tactics, there's that clever pun again, underhand tactics, is that if God is with us, if the gracious hand of God is upon us, we can do this. We can do this no matter how difficult it is to build church in this culture. We can do this no matter how disillusioned or cynical or disinterested you may be in church. Because God is holding the bat and swinging it even as we swing. However, it's actually not automatic that we can say, oh yeah, we're a Christian church, of course God's gracious hand is upon us. So what I want to look at next is how do we know? How do we know? Is God's gracious hand upon us? Because it's more than just a kind of a a feeling thing. Some Christians, uh, I think, are over-dependent upon feelings. They'll say, oh, I feel kind of mystical and spiritual this morning. Oh, God's with me. Or some Christians are just wildly over-optimistic and they're starting a new business deal. Oh, God's so with me in this. Man, this deal's going to go so well. They're going for an interview. Oh, God's so with me, I'm going to get this job. And then they don't or the deal doesn't work through or the project fails and they think, what? I thought God was with me. Let's just look a little bit more carefully what it means to have the gracious hand of God upon us. And it's not a mystical feeling, kind of uber-spiritual thing or overconfident thing. And I want to give us three things that are really sure indicators that God's gracious hand is upon us. And the first one, are we working together with God's Son? You see, Jesus was the ultimate Nehemiah. Earlier on, I said Nehemiah was one of the co-stars of the book. The star of this book is Jesus, even though his name is not even mentioned. The starring role is Jesus, the Son of God, who who fulfills everything that Nehemiah was a faint picture of. Nehemiah left his position of privilege and comfort in the centre of the power base of the world, travelled to a difficult, uninteresting, hostile territory 
to begin his mission of rebuilding God's people. Jesus, in exactly the same way, left his position of privilege and comfort and security in heaven with God his Father from all eternity past. And he came down, the Son of God, born a man, to a difficult, dangerous, hostile place. Why? Because he was on a mission. He was on a mission authorized by the king to rebuild God's people. Jesus was on a mission to come down and collect people who were disinterested in God and draw them up into God's purposes. Jesus is who Nehemiah is a faint shadow of. You read the book of Nehemiah and you think this is good stuff. It's like watching the trailer for the film. The reality, the full-blown, three-hour, 3D, ultra-high-definition epic is Jesus. So if you read the book of Nehemiah without thinking Jesus is incredible, you've perhaps only skim-read it. Jesus is the ultimate Nehemiah. Jesus' mission was to leave eternal bliss and to come down to rescue us. John chapter 3, 6 rather, verse 38, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' mission was to come down, and not to rebuild a physical city, but to build a community of people for God. The gospel, the Christian message, the message about Jesus is that Jesus, the Son of God, lived as a real man. And he didn't just come to teach us nice things about how to get on with each other. Jesus came to live a perfect life and to die the death that you and I deserve for our guilt and our rejection of God so that then we can reconnect with God through Jesus. And he rose from the dead. It was God's vindication of Jesus. It was God saying, everything that you've done, Jesus, I approve. And I endorse. And I'm with. And it guarantees us that when we connect with God through Jesus, God will raise us up. That's why we sung in one of those songs earlier, even when the end draws near and our life is reaching its conclusion, we don't fear. Because through Jesus, death has lost its sting, it's lost its fear, it's lost its power over us. For a Christian, death is like walking through one door into another room of existence. Death is like walking through a river and coming out safe the other side because Jesus came to reconnect us with God. And the message of Jesus is not try harder to be a nice person and fulfill all these commandments. The message of Jesus is if you commit and entrust your life to me and join with me on my mission, And Jesus says he will bring us to God and connect us with him. And that's what a real Christian is. And if you're sitting here or you're listening at home and you have not made that conscious personal decision of faith that you're going to connect with God through Jesus, that you're going to submit your whole life to him, I would strongly urge you to do that. Otherwise, everything else you're going to hear about is slightly irrelevant. Because God, his gracious hand upon you, is not going to be there if you reject God's Son. We cannot keep the Son of God at a distance and expect the hand of God to be upon us. Everything God does, he does through Jesus. Which is why the first criteria for the hand of God upon us is are we connected with God's Son? Secondly, we need to see, are we engaged on God's mission? You see, Nehemiah was on a mission to rebuild Jerusalem. What he didn't say is, Jerusalem, that's not a very good place. And it's not. It's kind of high up in the hill country. There's no kind of rivers that go through there. It's a bit difficult to get through. It's a little bit cold in the evenings. Nehemiah could have said, do you know what? I think a better place would be Haifa or Eilat, which are both still in Israel. They still count, but they're on the coast. So you can go swimming and they're hotter and they're warmer. 
and you don't have to climb up the mountains. So that's what I prefer. See, Nehemiah wasn't on a mission to just go and build something somewhere and do something that came into his head. Nehemiah was on a mission to rebuild God's people. And that's why Jerusalem had to be the key, because that was the place God had spoken about and said, this is the focal point where I want, in, in these days where I want people to come and meet, and we talked about last week how that expands out into the church. And because of that, I want us to understand that the gracious hand of God upon us is not a kind of you know, uh, magic charm, lucky rabbit's foot, salt over the shoulder, touch wood, this is going to work. Oh, the gracious hand of God is upon me. I'm going to be successful in everything I do. What it means is if we are on God's mission, then we can expect God's gracious hand upon us. This is not saying if you're in business, your business is going to be the greatest business ever because the gracious hand of God is upon you. This is not saying if you're a school teacher, your kids are going to get the best results ever because the gracious hand of God is upon you. Or your bank is going to be really successful. Or whatever job that you do. This is saying when we sign up for God's mission to build his church, Actually, we can expect the gracious hand of God to be upon us. Nehemiah came to rebuild a city. Jesus came to build a church, a worldwide people connected with God through him that, that expresses itself through little local churches popping up all over the place, all over the world. That's why we're so passionate about what we're doing here because Jesus loves his church. I'd like to read to you a couple of lines from Ephesians chapter 5. Paul, who wrote these lines, starts off talking about marriage, but then he kind of gets carried away in this analogy he draws between husbands and wives with Jesus and the church. And the main thing I want us to see from this is, is how does Jesus feel about the church? It says, husbands, love your wives. And then he says, actually, let's talk about Jesus and the church. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, he died for the church, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And there's an opportunity to dig into that uh, passage in the connect sheets, which are in the foyer, which are our regular things that help you connect with church life, connect with the Bible message we've been hearing. But all I'm going to say for it here, because most of the work you can do on the connect sheet, all I want to say is this. If Jesus is talking about the church as, as a bride, he loves the church. He gave himself up for her. He loves the church. The church is not incidental to what Jesus is doing. It's everything to him. And he says his mission is to make the church holy, to bring the church to this point where we're finished, where we're mature, we're complete in Christ. Jesus is not saying, I want a bunch of people and they're going to be a pretty scrappy lot and you know, I'll pay them attention now and again. Everything Jesus is doing, everything he came to do on earth is in order to build the church because he loves the church. It's what he's all about. And ultimately, one day, it will come to fruition. We read the book of Revelation is, is a kind of picture book summarizing the rest of what we find in the Bible. And you get this wonderful picture of God's church, his worldwide people that he's brought together in, Rome, in Revelation 7, which says, After this I looked, and there before me was a vast multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne of God and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. And they cried out... 
And the angels were standing round the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to God forever and ever. Amen. That's the culmination of everything Jesus was doing is when millions and billions of people who didn't know God and didn't want to know God, God suddenly got hold of their lives and built them into his church, expressed through local churches. And one day, we're going to be singing and shouting, glory to God for what he's done. This is phenomenal. That's what history is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. It's not just about, hey, do you personally get to connect with God? And so if you're a Christian here, you need to know that Jesus' mission is the church. And you need to be part of that mission. If we want the gracious hand of God upon us, we need to be involved in what he's doing. Thirdly, last thing on the gracious hand of God upon us, we've got to be working with his son. We've got to be on his mission. I should just clarify that last point. What I don't mean is we can't expect God to be involved in our day-to-day work. He completely is involved. What I'm saying is we can't automatically assume that everything we do is going to be a success in our day-to-day work. Are we happy with the distinction? Is that good? Yeah, lovely, good. Third thing is, the third thing, we should expect to be fighting his battle. I'm not going to talk very much about the opposition that Nehemiah faces from the surrounding politicians, the governors. Suffice to say, opposition is not evidence that God is not at work with us. Actually, the opposite is true. When we face opposition in our work for Jesus, that's often a very good sign that we're on the right track and we're doing the right thing. Jesus said, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. So we should expect the same reaction from people as Jesus got, which is some people will love it and want to connect with God through the message of Jesus. Other people will oppose it and say, what you're doing is wrong, it's stupid, it's backward, it's primitive, it's repressive. So we shouldn't be thrown by that when people mock and disparage us. Because Jesus experienced that, we should experience it. And often it says us, do you know what, we're doing something right. Little caveat, that's when people oppose us and mock us and ridicule us for being Christians, not for being jerks. Okay? It, some of you are just spanners sometimes, and it, and it winds people up. So not everybody says to you, ah, oh, you don't, oh, great, it's persecution for Jesus. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But also, everyone who's a bit irritating or lazy or a bit of a muppet will also get a bit of persecution. You've got to sift them out, okay? Don't thank God for when people have a go at you because you're a spanner. Happy? Good. I'm not going to do any more on opposition because Jeff is going to do a great job talking about that when we do chapter 4 in a few weeks' time. I want to turn now to my last kind of point and say what are our underhand tactics we've seen that the gracious hand of our God upon us is the key thing that makes all the difference we've seen that we need to be working with his son the ultimate Nehemiah we see that we need to be on his mission rebuilding God's people and we've seen that we can expect opposition but what is our tactics when we are working under this amazing gracious hand of God and to make it really simple I just want to give you two things first one is good strategy good strategy. Nehemiah really knew what he was doing. When you read through the passage we saw, it wasn't a collection of random ideas. He'd thought it through. Okay, if I'm going to restore the fortunes of God's people, I'm going to need to get myself down there. That's going to be difficult. I'm going to need resources to rebuild. I haven't got them. 
and I'm going to need people to rebuild. And so step by step, he's getting there. Right, I'm going to ask the king. I've worked out before what I'm going to need. And then I'm going to challenge the people down in Jerusalem. Good strategy, which is what Nehemiah had, is a combination of two things. Good strategy means you can see the final vision, the end result, and you know the next steps in taking it. So you keep your eyes on the destination. Where are we going? What's our ultimate aim? But you then work out, what do we do to get there? See, Nehemiah knew the aim was not even, I want to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah's aim was, I want the whole city of Jerusalem to flourish and be glorious again. But to do that, I'm going to have to rebuild the wall. Otherwise, we'll just get attacked. And to rebuild the wall, I'm going to need resources and manpower. So I'll do this and this. And he works it back and then decides where to go. We need to be the same as a church. We need really good strategy that allows us to see what is the end goal and what are the next steps in getting there. You see, sometimes churches can be a bit foolish and they focus only on the main goal. And you'll say to them, what is is your church from doing? They say, our church, we're going to change the world for Jesus. Brilliant. What a great goal. How are you going to do it? We're going to change the world for Jesus. We're going to be a massive church. It's huge and affects everywhere. That's great. How are you going to do it? We're going to be a great church for Jesus. Yeah, you've said that. How are you going to do it? Oh, God's just going to do it. No. It's co-working, isn't it? We are co-workers with God. We don't just sit back and say, hey, I can't wait for God to make us a great church. Do you know, building church doesn't just happen. It's not a kind of a random process. It's, it's not a kind of a spiritual, sociological equivalent of the theory of evolution, whereby lots of small random changes somehow produce a more complicated, better result. And I'm not actually having a dig at evolution here. I know some of you would like me to. All I'm saying is the analogy is very similar. People think, well, we just turn up and we're just Christians and we love God and somehow the church grows and gets better and better. It doesn't work like that. We need a good strategy. End result, next steps. Other churches are too focused on the next steps. And you say, hey, what are you doing as a church? Hey, well, we're going to have a prayer meeting on Wednesday and then we're going to do Sunday morning and we're going to read a psalm. Great, where are you going? Well, we're going to have a Sunday morning and then we'll do this and then we'll have a small group. That's great, but where are you going? Oh, maybe we'll love each other. That's great, but where are you going? And both those types of churches tend not to be very effective for God. What we need is a church with good strategy that we know the end result and we know the next steps we need to take to get there. Here at King's, we're fairly clear on where we think we're going. We feel, Chris and I feel, and and the other guys that come into eldership, we've, we've kind of talked it and prayed it through. We know really that what God's calling us to do is to build a church here that is really good at helping people meet God live well and make a difference. We're not just called to exist. God's calling us to build a church that actually is going to be really quite sizable. Hundreds of people, not dozens of people. That we're going to affect Lewis. That we're going to affect the surrounding areas. We're going to affect overseas places like Lesotho and other places we're going to be connecting with this year overseas. We know that God's called us to to be many more people than can fit in this building. You know, and it'll give us a headache and we can't fit them all in. But actually what we don't do is sit daydreaming about wouldn't it be wonderful when there's three or four hundred people here? Because actually what you find then is nothing happens. What we also do is say, what are the next steps? So we talk about how do we help people meet God? How do we help people live well? How do we help people make a difference? And at the moment as a church, we are really just kind of transitioning from a small church to a medium church. And a small church is where on a Sunday pretty much everybody knows everybody else. 
and where most people are doing a job because it needs doing rather than they particularly want to do it. Kids workers, for example. A medium church is one where actually there's a lot of people on a Sunday that even if you're regular and you've been around for a while, you don't really know who they are because it's too big to get to know everyone. And where people start to find themselves in roles that fit their particular aptitude, skills and giftings. And we're just transitioning that. And we'll be transitioning that you know, probably you know, over the next year or two. You know, it'll take us up to 200, 250 till we've really made that transition. But because of that, we need to know what the next steps are here and now and what we can and can't do. We've got real restraints as a church on our resources because we're not yet you know, up to 200, 250 members. We're closing our infusion youth thing on Friday nights because we can't staff it. We've got manpower, resource issues. It's just not enough of us to do everything we need to do. We're crying out for leaders in certain areas. So we have to be sensible and say, what's the next steps? The next steps is not, hey, let's set up a massive youth ministry that affects the whole town. The next step for us is we need to pull back because we've got to make sure we don't burn ourselves out. We've got to make sure we live sustainable lives. Part of living well is not every waking minute I'm doing stuff for the church. Part of living well is having a life that when I'm working uh, in my secular job and my family and church, and actually I still get time to sit down and take a breather and see some buddies and enjoy life. We don't want a church where everyone's just cramming their diaries full of things. We ask people to prioritize really two things a week. Prioritize Sunday worship, and prioritise small group. And small group's so important because it's the key way that you belong to the church. And then we see, have we got capacity beyond that to do other stuff? We're really stretched because of our size. We're really stretched for finances as a church. We don't have enough money to do what we're doing. We took Al on staff as a real step of faith, even though we don't have the money to pay for him. Here's a little game for you to play in your heads right now. Don't call out the answers. Just have a little think. It's a guessing game. How much do you think it costs us to run everything we do as a church in one year? Have a little think. I won't, I won't kind of take bids or suggestions, but how much do you think it costs us a year? 220 grand. 220 grand it costs us. There's five staff, not all full-time. There's a, there's a substantial mortgage still left on this place. We've got ministries that need funding. We give away money to other uh, ministries and churches as well that we feel connected to, like Lesotho. And just paying bills costs money. 220 grand it costs a year. We don't have that as an income as a church. We're short of resources. There's stuff I want to do that we can't do because we can't afford it. Stuff that is great and will bless the community and help people come to Christ. But we have to say, do you know what? We're already stretched in terms of manpower and we're already stretched in terms of finances. That's why we have gift days every six months because we need it to make up the shortfall in our normal giving. Which is why, if you're a church member, serving and giving are key parts of belonging to us because it helps us on the mission we've got. And By the grace of God, over time, the shortfall between what we need and what we spend will close as more people join and give and the funding is increased and then we'll find another thing to stretch our faith and we'll do it. But we need to know where we're at and where we're at at the moment is we're kind of midway between a transition of small to medium and that means there's manpower and there's financial resources. So we need to be wise to that but we need to keep in mind where are we going. 
We're going somewhere bigger and better than this. Otherwise, we wouldn't take Al on staff. We'd say, we can't afford it. Let's just stay a small little church. They say one full-time leader can probably manage a church of between 80 and 100 people. So we could just stay. That would be nice and everyone would know each other. Why are we not doing that, people? Because we're on a mission. Because there's a whole world of people out there who don't know Jesus and who need to know the love of God. And with the other great churches in this town, God has entrusted us with the responsibility for it. So we need to look at the next steps. And what we're going to talk about next week in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, sorry, the week after next, is how can you be a part of the next steps in building this church. And I want to finish by saying the other half of our underhand strategy, we've got, uh, wise, we've got wise strategy, but we've got courageous faith. See, everything I've talked about, some of you are thinking, crumbs, that's a lot of money. Crumbs, we haven't got enough people. Are we gonna, how are we going to do this? This is difficult. How are we ever going to get so big that we fill this place? And what, and what will we do when we do fill it and we can't go somewhere else? Crumbs. No, no, no. It's all about underhand tactics. It's all about the gracious hand of God upon us. So do you know what? We can do this. Nehemiah looked at the situation impossible. Artaxerxes, he's already said no. The people in Jerusalem, they're not going to go for it again but he boldly stepped up and took action. So we can have courageous faith that God will build a church through us that will do far more than we can do at the moment. That's why I don't have sleepless nights about the fact that the financial kind of situation of this church could be described by some as precarious. Because I think, do you know what? God is with us. God has been with us. I was very nervous. When I first gave up my teaching job, uh, maybe seven years ago, uh, to go full-time as part of the church leadership, I was really nervous because I didn't know if we were going to do it. I wasn't at all sure of my own abilities and capabilities. The church, I think, was in quite an unhealthy stage at the time. We were small. We were struggling. We had resource issues. That The building that we were meeting in was, uh, could be taken away from us at any time. And I very kind of reluctantly said to God, I really just think you're calling me to do this, so I'm going to do it. But I don't know. Is this going to work? God's been with us. God's blessed us. The church didn't fall apart. Honestly, my objective for the first year when I was kind of in full-time ministry is let's see if the church can exist by the end of the year. And praise God it did. I hadn't driven it into the ground. But God provided. Slowly we've grown. God has provided this building incredibly. The financial provision from God, mainly through church members, has been awesome. And it gives me confidence to think, do you know, if God can take us from A to B, he can take us from B to C, and then from C to D. Because the gracious hand of God upon us can do anything more than we imagine. So I don't have sleepless nights over the finances or the staffing, or even when we have to close down things like infusion, because I think God is with us. God is with us. So as long as we're wise in our strategy, keep our eyes on the big picture, and also think about the next steps, Actually, he can do it through us. We are co-workers with God, which means we need to be people with courageous faith. It's not about sitting in my office thinking, isn't it wonderful how God's going to build it? Actually, it's quite a hard job. It's not about you being part of the church thinking, hey, wasn't it great to hear a stirring talk the last few weeks about what God's going to do? Can't wait to see it happen. It's about being like Nehemiah and saying, let's get on with it. It's being like uh, Peter in the boat when Jesus says, get out and walk on water. Peter needed to co-work with him. He needed to step out before he could walk on water. It's like when the disciples fed 5,000 people with a picnic. 
They needed to co-work with God, not just sit down and look at the food. Hand it out, get involved. My word, look what God is doing. It's Moses leading the people out of Egypt to the Exodus. He needed to speak to Pharaoh. He needed to strike the ground with his staff. He needed to do these things. And as he did, co-working with God, it's like Dad was swinging the bat and incredible things happened. Joshua taking the people into the promised land. They had to sharpen their swords and go in, yet God was with them because the gracious hand of God was upon them. It's like Jesus, the ultimate Nehemiah, coming to earth to live as a servant and to give his life. And the gracious hand of God was upon him and raised him from the dead and declared a resounding yes and amen to everything he's done. The courageous faith that sees that's what it means to be a co-worker with God is the faith that says it's worth giving everything to this mission. I'm employed full-time for the church. That's not why I'm telling you this. I'm employed because I believe this. This is why God has brought me to this role, because I believe it's the church and it's worth giving everything to. I'm not like a politician giving you the party line. I'm I'm giving you this line because this is what God says to us and what God's going to do through us. And I want us as a church to be people who take hold of courageous faith and believe that God can do it. We need to dare to believe that the kingdom of God can advance through us. And we need to dare to believe that the gracious hand of God upon us can build a church here that is going to be far more effective than anything we can cook up with our own efforts or even what we can imagine in our minds. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you're just fantastically great. I just I love the way you inspire people like Nehemiah to go for it. I love the way you, you, you use a mixture of just sensible, wise planning and strategy and gutsy, courageous faith to get your work done. And I want to ask, I want to plead with you for us as a church here that we can be people like that. Let us not be foolish daydreamers, but let us not be uh, cynical, passive passengers either. I pray you'd help us under the gracious hand of God to work with you in advancing your kingdom, spreading the gospel and building your church. Amen. Amen.